This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and the author of Find Your Happy at Work. Our guest today is leadership expert, Mark Crowley. He spent 25 years in banking and financial services, and in his last job, he led nearly 2,000 investment brokers to best ever performance. Coming into that role, Mark had no direct experience selling stocks or the other products that these employees were offering. Nevertheless, that firm named him Leader of the Year in his first year. He did very well in business. These days, though, Mark is a speaker, consultant, and writer. And today he's going to tell us about the new edition of his classic book, Lead from the Heart. He'll explain why, whether you're leading a company or a group of college students, they're more likely to do well if you lead with caring and emotion. Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for being with me here today at Just About Work. It's a thrill for me to be here, Beverly, so thank you. Well, we're going to have a good time because we have a lot of good stuff to talk about, and you have a lot of new information. Today, we're going to focus, of course, on the um, new edition of your classic book. I think it came out 11 years ago, Lead from the Heart, but the new version is full of lots of um updates on the science and also um, the situation in the workplace. But before we get into all that, Mark, I, I'd really like to hear a bit about you and how um, you began to really focus on emotion as, as part of the way um, you've connected with people. In, in your book, there was a story that I found really both uh, moving and instructional. And that that was your relationship. It started when you were a kid, and I guess it's still going today, your relationship with Mrs. Whitman. Would you um, tell us that story and and, and how it it related to to your view of leadership today? Yeah, it's a wonderful place to start. In fact, um, I never enjoy telling my own story. But whenever I think of Mrs. Whitman, it's sort of the antidote to it. So I'd love to tell you. And I, I think you know, Beverly, after reading my book, that um, my personal story proved to play quite an enormous role in shaping my ideas on leadership, which I know we're going to get to. But I grew up in Long Island in New York. And a few days after I turned nine, I came home from school and was told my mother had died. And... I had known, of course, that she had been ill, but no one ever told me to be prepared for this being a terminal illness. In fact, they said, you know, she has an ulcer is what I was told, which didn't mean anything to me except the intonation was she's going to be fine. And so it was this truly devastating moment to find out that I was never going to see her again. And from that point on, I was raised by my father and he was... Honestly, he was a hugely successful guy, uh, but for whatever reason, chose to intentionally 
undermine my spirit, my confidence, my sense of well-being through just years and years of constant yelling and emotional and psychological abuse, the best way I can describe it. And it was almost as if his goal was to permanently cripple me. And, you know, I reflected on this when I was writing the preface of my book originally, like, what was his goal? And it's like, I, he couldn't have had any other goal than just to completely undermine my spirit. And he repeatedly told me that I lacked and that I was never going to amount to anything in life. And you're hearing this constantly. It does a pretty good job on your self-esteem. And it turned out that while my mom was dying a very horrible death in those days, they just didn't have the cure for cancer that they have today or even the treatments to make things better. He was having an affair and he remarried the woman. He married the woman that uh, he was having the affair with. And as soon as my new stepmother moved into our home, she proved to be even less caring and supportive than my father, hard as that could be to imagine. And she made it clear oh. to me that, like, I don't want you in the house after school. Like, you have to go find some place to live. Like, not live, but come home at 7 o'clock when your father comes home on the train at night. So this was New York, and it's freezing outside. It was December when this happened. And I only honestly had one option, which was to go next door where my best friends Paul and Candy Whitman lived. And I'm going there day in and day out for four or five days. And I'm already at 10 years old aware that – Mrs. Whitman's got five kids of her own. And there's going to be a moment where she's just going to say, you know, can't keep coming here every day. Like not every day, like occasionally that's fine, but can't live here. And it terrified me because I didn't know what I was going to do. And honestly, I really wanted to stay there on top of it because Mrs. Whitman quickly demonstrated like an interest in me. She laughed at my jokes and she made me feel something that I wasn't feeling at home. I, I, I felt valued. I felt like I was part of the family. I felt loved, you know, all of that. And, and it gave me this great alternative to what I was hearing at home. Like I could envision myself being a very different person in my future than what you know, my dad was telling me explicitly. But one day, Mrs. Whitman took me into her, like her, it was a TV room, very small room. And she said, you know, I want you to come with me. I want to have a conversation with you. And it, honestly, Beverly, it felt like dead man walking because I knew what oh, was dear. coming. I knew that it was going to be this moment where, you know, you can't keep coming here, Mark. But instead of kicking me out, she completely shocked me. And I think, you know, she probably knew what was going on, at least some extent of what was going on at home. And she just made it emphatically clear that she wanted me to come to her house every day. And as I wrote in my book, it felt like spiritual fireworks going off inside of me. And I continued to go to the Whitman's house for the next four years until my father moved me to California, moved my family, you know, and kicked me out of the house a few, few days after I graduated from high school. Um, but her influence really helped stabilize me in those years where after my father kicked me out and I had no money and was trying to go to school, I truly believed in what she was telling me and not what my father wanted me to believe. And I'll stop there, but not before saying that all these decades later, as you pointed out a second ago, Mrs. Whitman is still in my life. She's 93 years old. And I happened to just see her along with Paul and Candy just a couple of weeks ago in New York. And when I wrote the first edition of my book 11 years ago, 
I spent hours on the phone with her discussing her memories of my of my childhood. And interestingly, it was she who told me in that conversation. She said, you know, by deeply caring about the people who worked for you all these years and watching them thrive and excel based on how you led them, that's how you healed all the pain that you experienced growing up. And so this is a woman that's still in my life, but you know, to be a neighbor next door with five kids to have that kind of influence, I'll never, ever stop loving her and being grateful to her. That's, that's such a wonderful story. And it explains how you brought an approach to leadership when you were leading, what, at one point, 2,000 investment brokers. You had all of these people, but your model started way back when you were a kid and you were kind of doing for them what she did for you. Is that right? It is right. Um, what's so interesting about it is that, so I ended up, my dad kicked me out and, and the, I went through five very, very difficult years. Um, but I had, I had believed Beverly that at this point in my life that it was a binary choice. Like I was either going to graduate from college or I wasn't going to graduate from college. And if I didn't graduate, then I would be the abject failure that my father told me I was going to be. So I was by hook or by crook determined to get through college. And so I did. Uh, they should have kicked me out the first couple of years. But in the end, I kind of got into a rhythm and I was working and figured out a way to make it happen and did very well my last couple of years. And I got a job. And as I started managing people, I just managed people by instinct. And all of a sudden, you know, and I still hear my father's voice, like you're never going to amount to anything. I'm still hearing this, even though I've proved to myself that I could graduate from a top university. It still wasn't resonating. But I'm managing people and all of a sudden I just keep getting these promotions. Like people are seeing things in me and they're like, we think you should be able to do this. And all of a sudden I'm at a level that I never could have imagined at a very relatively young age. And I just didn't understand it. I'm like, what am I doing? But I didn't dig deeply enough until I was, I think, 42 or 43 years old. I'm not kidding. When a woman named Cecilia, who had worked for me for nearly 20 years, just casually said to me, she said, you know, you manage people really differently relative to anyone around you, and especially people in financial services, which was and still is a rather aggressive dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world where you don't necessarily have to care about people. It should be all about the money. And if you don't do well, we'll find somebody else, that kind of an attitude. And so I said, well, what do you mean? And so she started pointing out to me my behavior in terms of leadership and how I got how I actually inspired people to scale mountains for me and to do amazing work. And it didn't matter if it was man or woman, didn't matter age, didn't matter education experience. Everyone I ever managed did this. They thrived and did phenomenal work. And I just kept getting promoted and validated. And I, when she started to point out to me the things that I was doing, I had this epiphany that unconsciously I had been managing people by giving them everything that I never got growing up and always wanted. I wanted to feel safe. I wanted to be feel valued. I wanted to feel supported. I wanted somebody to thoughtfully direct me. You know, how'd you do on your paper? Oh, here's how we might be able to do that better next time. Don't worry about this grade. You know, let's take this class to make sure you stay on schedule. I had none of these things. And so I just, 
unconsciously gave people everything. And what I discovered, I'm so glad you asked this question. The main discovery that I made was that we never outgrow needing this. We never, we think by the time people come to work that they should be like grownups and they don't need to be cared for or nurtured or, you know, advocated for. It's like, that's the workplace. That's not what you need. That's not what we give you. And what I found is that when you do give this to people, that human thriving leads to employee thriving, which leads to organizational thriving. Like when people are supported in the ways that I supported them, they do incredible work, which ultimately translates into everything business wants, right? They want people to be highly productive. They want them to meet their goals. They want to meet their profit. And what I proved over and over and over, even as you mentioned at the end with these these couple thousand stockbrokers, these are people that are principally driven by money because they don't get paid unless they sell something. But what I found is that by caring about them, by helping to understand their business, by helping to understand them and finding ways to support them, that I elevated their performance simply because they went, that guy, he really cares about me. And that proves to really matter. So part of your epiphany was not just noticing what you were doing and, and, and how you were providing the care that you'd never received, but it was... Um, suddenly realizing you're doing it differently than other people, that you're leading in a way that's not the normal way in corporate America. Was it this um, awareness that you're doing something different that that works and that helps people that uh, caused you to think about leaving your successful career as a leader to become an expert helping other people to become leaders? No. Um, in fact, when I realized that I had been influenced so greatly by my childhood and I realized, wait a minute, like I have a 20 year history of doing, of seeing extraordinary things happen. Um, so in other words, the teams that I've managed had consistently done exceptional work and people understood that Mark Crowley is a really great leader. No one ever looked under the hood to see what I was doing. And, and I wasn't really motivated by that. What I was motivated by was wow, now that I figured this out, how can I make it better? So for the next few years, I started to experiment, like trying, just refining what I ended up writing about in the book, these four practices of leading from the heart. And, um, and of course, there are, there's more aspects to it than any four things, but these are, if you do them together, I found that they are unbelievably powerful in influencing human performance. But I did the the further research, if you will, for the purpose of making myself more effective. That was my goal. But what ended up happening was our organization ended up getting bought and it got bought by an organization whose culture was so foreign to me. It was so abusive of people. It was so exploitive of people. It was a, it was a culture that principally didn't care about people. What they said was, we have a machine and you're part of that machine. And so we are happy you're here to be part of that machine, but we're just as happy having somebody else be part of that machine. And I just couldn't, it just not only didn't it resonate with me, it repelled me. 
So I just kind of saw that this wasn't, it's by the way, one of the largest banks in the country. So your audience can probably figure it out. Um, Mm -hmm. They're based in Ohio originally. Um, But um, this is a company that I just couldn't work for. And so I decided I was going to leave and worked out a negotiation with them where I did that. And I, my wife literally had her sister die one day. The day that I left, her sister died. Another sister died 10 days later. And within 90 days, her dad died. So my wife went into this deep depression. And I just went into her one day and I said, would you support me if I took this time to write a book? And she could not have been more supportive. Like, in fact, what, you know, with all the grief that she was experiencing, she said, you need to do that. Like, that's this is your next chapter, no pun intended. (laughs) But what she was telling me was like, she saw this in me, like she knew who I was at this point in our relationship so deeply that she goes, you need to convey this. And so, you know, I dedicated the first book and the second book to her because the, it's interesting, but when I started to write the book, I almost felt crippled again, you know, like, my my father's voice was in my head telling me, you're not a writer. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Other people are authors, you know, get off yourself kind of a thing. And she was the one that kept saying, no, you have something really important to tell. So she, I up, she followed the path. She followed the path of Mrs. Whitnam. She did. What was her name? Yeah. It sounds yes. like you were really fortunate with her. Well, you know, it's really interesting because there's been synchronicities through this entire process, starting from the time that, honestly, from the time that I was nine, you know, from all the way through people in my life that came at the right time, that were there with the right support, that allowed me to, you know, actually convey this message. People that are in the book who, you know, showed up miraculously with the information that you know, that I'm using to try to change leadership. But, you know, my wife and I've been married for many years, but she knew this was my purpose and um, has really just been such a huge advocate. There were many days, honestly, for, you know, despite all the success that I had in my career where I just thought, I can't do this. I, I just simply can't do it. And she would just say, it's in you. You can do it. Go back. If you need a break, take a break, whatever. But... Uh, By the way, the word encouragement means to give heart to people. I find that really interesting because that's exactly what she was doing. That's that's lovely. But it it strikes me that one of the challenges you had when you were writing the book, and of course you started more than 11 years ago, you were writing at a time when it wasn't so fashionable to talk about emotion and also science, you know, the, the people who know all about hearts didn't know what we know today. The first version of the book has been updated in this new one in which you give some fascinating um, research about how the heart is a much more complicated and important part of our thinking in ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, it was kind of foreign when you started, but what we know today, what science knows today about the heart. Yeah. um, You know, last summer when my publisher came to me and said, we want you to write a second edition of your book. They they made this point that we we know you were, the language was, ahead of the culture when you wrote the book the first time. And of course, 
you know, when I wrote it, I wasn't aware of that, but I quickly found out that there was going to be amazing resistance to this. And so I thought it was a powerful descriptor because my, my book really directly and intentionally challenged all of our traditional thinking about workplace leadership, like completely blow it up. And we've always believed that the best way to get people to be productive was to, this is traditional leadership theory, pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible. And, and if you want, bring a little fear and intimidation into how you treat people, because that's going to get the best out of people. And we certainly never believed that we needed to be concerned about workers as people. All of this sounds soft, what I'm going to be describing here is, you know, we even forbade employees from bringing their personal lives to work. We said things like, you know, leave your troubles at the door. Um, so we had this firewall, like we don't want to know you as a person. We don't care about you as a person. All we care about is your work and we'll pay you if you do a good job and we'll replace you if you don't. And so here I come and assert that, all of that is wrong. And you can imagine why the business world wouldn't be quick to embrace it, which just we're just challenging common assumptions and common behavior. And, and I say parenthetically that education, by the way, embraced it immediately. So over, since the book came out originally and the 10th university now has just adopted it for their curriculum. So education saw the future and said, this is where we're going. This is how we have to lead. So that heartened me in the process of dealing with, um, uh, with dealing with, um, you know, business leaders who just thought that this whole idea made no sense at all. So my key premises. Apologize for that. Um, no I problem. say parenthetically. Let me. Let me. Are, are we recording this perfectly? Editing this or not? We'll edit that out. Oh, thank you. I apologize. I no always problem. disconnect my phone, and I just can't believe I let that go. Okay, so my key premises are that human beings are not the rational fellows that we've always believed we were. Centuries ago, Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And we've always believed our brains made all of our choices and decisions. Most people still believe that today. But science now knows um, that Antonio Damasio, who was at the Salk Institute, famous Salk Institute in La Jolla, where I live, about 10 years ago, wrote a book called Descartes' Error. And what he said was, obviously, <laughs> Descartes was wrong, that we now know that up to 95% of our behavior is driven by feelings and emotions. Now, 11 years ago, this was actually, he had just come out with this, but this was like completely information that people didn't want to believe. We really truly want to believe that everything that goes on cognitively happens in our heads. And he's saying, we actually make most of our decisions from our feelings and emotions. And so consequently, I argue that workplace managers must pay far greater attention to how people feel in their jobs, which is completely foreign to how we've traditionally managed. And that when we make employees feel valued and supported and developed and appreciated all the things that I did on instinct tied to my upbringing, we actually scientifically set them up for optimal performance. So we've always believed that fear made people work hard. But what science is proving is that caring is the opposite, is what elevates performance. And so 
this is why the book is called Lead from the Heart. People have this association. They hear the heart in the title and they go, oh, soft and weak. He must be a sentimental guy or a spiritualist or somebody who doesn't get business. But the reason it's called Lead from the Heart is because when we care about people and we support them, we respect them and appreciate them, we're literally affecting them in their hearts. It's a feeling sensing, feeling sensing organ. And so the heart plays a huge role in influencing our choices and our decisions. And interestingly, there's an organization called the Institute of Heart Math, and they have been studying the intelligence of the heart for the last 30 years. And what they've proved, and others have subsequently proved, is that the heart and mind are actually in constant communication with the heart sending more information to the brain than the other way around. So more often than not, what people feel in their hearts influences their brains and influencing them in what decisions they make next. So in my language, employee engagement or employee happiness, those are decisions that are made in our hearts and not in our brains. I think what you're saying is it is something that has been, um, oh, I don't know, it's becoming mainstream over the last few years. You know what I'm doing these days, instead of being a lawyer like I used to, I'm an executive <laughs> coach. And it, it's a lot about connecting with people in a heart-to-heart kind of way. Um, but it, even though there's a, a tide in this direction, we don't see heart-to-heart connecting as a leadership mode very often, if we look around our organizations. Would you um, tell us briefly um, the what it does look like? You've mentioned four things uh, that are um, kind of summarize your lead to heart approach. Could you tell us about those? Well, let me pin down Mark, what you just said. excuse me. Yeah. I, I'm going to take a pause here because somebody just knocked on the door and I have to go <laughs> a second. Go ahead. I feel better now, Adam. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Good. That makes makes it easy then. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know you're gonna miss the recording. Yeah. It's easier to take out oh. than to add in. Yeah. So I am back, um, okay. and I think I had just kind of mumbled something about. Um, the four um, keys to uh, leading from the heart. Shall I re-ask that question? No, because I- you, you, you actually asked a question about connection, which I just think is really important. Oh, um, okay. And, and I'll head so- into connecting one-on-one with people uh, as one of Great. the practices. To, to, Because you, your question was perfect, so I wouldn't change right. All right, so, all right, why don't you just start uh, exploring um what it means to connect with another person. Okay. 
So Beverly, that is such an insightful thing that you just said about connecting. And it's interesting also that, that we use the expression heart to heart. Like why, why would we not say, let's have a brain to brain conversation here if we're such rational people, right? So where did that come from? Uh, but you know, the idea of connecting is something we, science knows now that human beings, like we absolutely are social beings and we need to have regular connection with other people. And when I mean regular connection, we there's research that shows that just going into the dry cleaner or the hardware store or seeing the fellow neighbor on the street, that those little mini interactions with people form very, very powerful interactions. And so what's happened now with people, many cases now, professional people working remotely some of the time or even all of the time, is there's tons of evidence that shows that we are losing those connections and it's harming us. So when we started to open workplaces two years after COVID, I wrote an article saying it's really not a good idea for people to be working remotely full time because they're spending eight, 10 hours a day alone and they're not having any connection with other people. That's not good for them. It's not good for their health and well-being, but it's also not good for the team because people need to feel connected to the people they work with and then ultimately the organization. And uh, as somebody pointed out to me, it's the brains in people that um, influence many people to send me hate mail saying you're dead on wrong and working from home is the greatest thing that ever happened and you're a corporate chill. But I think what's happening is, is that people are now like a year later are realizing like I do miss being with other people and I, I think our hearts are sending that message. But when people, even when they're working remotely, I think or not remotely, I think what we lose sight of in business is how important it is to just, as a manager, to just spend time with Beverly. Like isolate Beverly and just have a conversation about how are you? What's going on with you? We found, and Gallup confirmed this, that during the early months of COVID, that employee engagement skyrocketed for like the first six months. And then it plummeted afterwards. And the reason was, was that in those first months of COVID, not knowing how long this was going to last, managers and organizations went out of their way to demonstrate that they cared about people. They started sending them gifts at home and they had meetings and just saying, how are you doing? How are you holding up? You know, the kids are running around in the background, all of these kinds of things that were happening. And people felt like, wow, like I feel really cared for. Like they, you know, is this a good time to talk to you, Beverly? I know you've got your, your husband's on the phone in the background. I can see that. Would you like for me to call you back at a different time? All of these kinds of thoughtful, generous, caring kinds of behaviors drove engagement up because people could feel, wow, like this is fantastic. I love this. And it's all unconscious. And then of course, once we either decided that this COVID thing was going to last longer or people just thought it didn't matter, they stopped doing it. So I just call you at eight o'clock and go, Beverly, where are you on the report? And I don't ask about how you're doing, how your child is doing with, with school. I don't care about anything that's going on with you. It's like, hey, are you going to hit these numbers? Are you going to meet my deadlines? And people can feel that. 
So connection is a really, really powerful part of my message. And so one of the four practices is literally getting to know people on such a great level. And I don't mean having them over for Sunday dinner or going out drinking with them. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is dedicate regular time to finding out what's going on in their life, seeing if there are ways you can accommodate them. If you have a, a mom who wants to take, or a dad wants to take their kid to school, and it means they're going to be in the office 15 minutes late every day, why wouldn't you make that accommodation? What a great thing to do for someone. It's not going to make a difference in their productivity. In fact, it's, it's probably going to elevate it. So getting to know people and what they want to accomplish, where they want to grow, Finding ways to support people is one of the most powerful ways that you can elevate performance. And we think it's taboo. We think I shouldn't have to know what's going on in people's life when, in fact, without crossing boundaries, you know, without getting too, too overtly personal, it's exactly what people want. So a big part of it is focusing on somebody, asking questions. But to me, an even bigger part of it which is good even if you're kind of shy or you don't think you're articulate, a big part of it is, is listening, noticing, putting your attention in the direction of another person in a non-judgmental way. It's that um, kind of opening your heart, yourself, and then mm-hmm. hearing what the other person has to say. And that, that seems to be a good starting point. Would you agree? I totally agree. In fact, it's I'll chunk it up even one more level and say that if if I work for you, Beverly, and you said, Mark, I want to have a meeting with you where all we do is talk about you. I want to know how I can support you, what your career goals are, what you might want to learn, anything that I can do for you. I want to dedicate that time. So when we have that meeting, and you give me that time, I'm automatically feeling I matter. I matter to you, Beverly, my manager, because who we give our time to demonstrates to people whether they're valued or not. And so just demonstrating that you care enough about them that you want to give them that time and that you don't look at your phone and that you don't you don't allow yourself to be seduced into saying, well, you know, Beverly, why have you here? Where are you on that report? So you have to keep that out of it. It has to be just a personal conversation. And interestingly, I had Marcus Buckingham on my podcast, and he said something that I totally agree with, which is that our span of control is limited by the number of people that we can have a personal conversation with once a week. And some managers are going to go, I don't need to talk to people once a week. But guess what? That goes back to your point about connection. It's what people need in order to thrive. A connection with their boss where it's just them, just them talking. And we think we do that through the interactions of meetings and running into people in the halls. But there's nothing like just having dedicated time with your boss. Well, speaking of bosses and managers and so forth, the the advice, the teaching that you do with your book isn't just for people who already have big jobs. We can practice leadership anytime, anywhere. It can be in the family. It can be uh, at a, you know, in a college uh, meeting. Um, This kind of leading through connecting is accessible and helpful to all. And I suspect that we have listeners out there who've 
heard you talk about this and are feeling inspired and maybe want to um, uh, take some steps in, in, in this direction. Of course, one thing they should do is get the book, uh, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century by Mark C. Crowley. So uh, we do want them to to remember this book is a, is a wonderful book. But but also for people who want to do something today, as before we leave, Mark, could you make some suggestions as maybe just a starting point for somebody who's out there and maybe wants to connect a little more with the, the people around him? I love that question. Um, I'd say there's, there's a couple. One that pops into my mind has to do with, so my premise is how you make people feel is what motivates their behavior, good or bad. So if you neglect someone, if you ignore them, you walk in and don't say anything to them, you're having an impact on how they're feeling. So what I tried to do with, um, and I, I had a personal coach and she was sort of on to me at this point. Like she, I hadn't written the book, I'm still in the corporate world, but she kind of picked up on you know, who I was. And she said, your goal from now on is to be incredibly conscious of leaving people better than you found them. And I just thought that was so powerful because it's so well aligned to what I'm trying to achieve. So if I send an email to someone, I'm very much conscious of how is what I'm saying going to make them feel. So that's one. Just think about how can I make somebody feel better in any experience that I have? So I'm, you know, I travel a lot for speaking and I get in cars and I, I always talk to the Uber drivers or, you know, uh-huh. I talk to everybody. I just, it's just part of me just to make people feel like you matter. And in that moment they do matter, you know? And so that's one. And then the other is, and, and, and this is sort of sounds so easy and yet, when you talk to people, they go, no, I don't get that very much. It's just thanking people. We think that we have to like, when we tell an employee, good job, I'm really proud of you. This is wonderful. I'm so grateful. Thanks for getting this to me ahead of time. We think those are like words that are equivalent to reaching into your pocket, like your wallet rather, like it's going to cost you something. And what I found is unless I go, Beverly, you're the greatest. I love you, Beverly, 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 you're wonderful. Like nobody's going to do that in the real world. But this is how our fantasy works when they hear me say, you cannot over appreciate people. So if somebody meets a goal for you today and you go, hey, Beverly, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. That's awesome. And then they come in and they go, hey, I just had something happen. It's incredible. It's going to make you really happy. It's something I've been working on for a week now. And you go, well, I already thank Beverly. So I can just go, okay, okay, good. You know, and just let it go. And I'm saying, no, like the more you appreciate people, the more you're going to get the behaviors you're looking for and just make yourself a gracious and appreciative person and watch how people's behavior changes around you. That is wonderful advice to end on our, our conversation today. I, people desperately need to be seen and uh, acknowledged and um they want to be wanted. So thank you so much for sharing that. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thanks for being here, Mark. This has been a true honor for me. So thank you so very much, Beverly. To 
Today we've been talking with author Mark Crowley about how to lead successfully by leading from the heart. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that people are more likely to accept your leadership if you recognize their individual strengths and help them to develop those strengths. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. And if you enjoy our show, please give us a five-star rating. Thank you.